the Birch Bark House, Chapter 10, is called The Visitor. A fire was kindled in the center of the dance lodge, and its fragrant smoke rose through the central opening in the roof. The fire was hardly needed, though, in spite of the cold, for the crowd of dancers, the drummers, the children, the old men in the farthest corner gambling, seated off, seated on soft skins, the old ladies at their games and gossip, the young women in the center and the young men surrounding them, the people of all ages talking, laughing, and dancing, kept the great lodge warm. Omakayas loved the drum. The beat throbbed through her, drumming her enti entirely alive and eager. The soles of her feet tingled. Her hands moved in time to the song. Angeline danced, too, wearing her new shawl and holding Grandma's partridge-tail fan. Standing at the center with ten snow, she gracefully bounced to the beat. Thimbles ringing, her body moved in exact time. Mama when she was only known as that swift girl Yellow Kettle had and had no children, had always loved to dance. She bobbed in the corner, contented and proud of her daughters, Niwo alongside her. Even Noko Miss couldn't help dancing. Omakayas stopped to watch her grandmother step along with such care and dignity. She seemed to be crossing a rushing stream on small stones. Her steps were small and light as a deer's. Omakayas thought watching her proudly. Heat radiated from the fire, and the faces of the girls and young women turned rosy red and warm. Trade silver tokens, bracelets, armbands, crosses flashed, and ribbons swirled as the dancers moved in joy and excitement, crying out for another song as soon as each one was done. The drum intensified. The laughter turned ever more hilarious. The old men won and lost in their moccasin gambling game and the children wove in and out of the movement, hiding from one another, tagging around the side of a, a parent, teasing and sometimes dancing, too. Around the middle of the night, everybody stopped to partake in the feast. A big kettle of venison and corn soup was brought in by the fire, and children were sent back to houses and lodges for birch bark, makooks, and tin bowls. While they were eating, teasing, commenting on the soup, flavored with low-growing juniper berries and parched hot summer corn, Something happened that disturbed everyone and changed the course of the winter. Indeed, what happened changed the way Omakayas and her family lived from then on. A visitor entered. He and his voyager crew had just dragged their sled of furs across from the mainland and were staying for the night. Thinking back, Omakayas could even remember him. Sitting by the fire as close as he could without scorching, a tired-looking man, thin and scraggly braids, coughing and feeble, a bit confusing, confused-looking, a flushed, fevered face. It was hearing of his death in hushed tones, though, the next day that she would always recall. The report of it, for the horror flooded swiftly from house to house, lodge to lodge. He died of smallpox. Although the visitor's body was taken to the farthest end of the island, although everything he'd touched was burned, including the lodge he'd stayed in and the blankets he wore, although the generous family who let him in purified themselves in the sweat lodge, burned all of their belongings and threw themselves upon the mercy of the mission, fear abounded in the settlement. Had the visitor left another more horrible visitor behind? Sickness? Death? Angeline's face was taut with worry. She knew that her kind, tense snow... Noticing the stranger's discomfort, 
had put her own bowl filled with soup into his hands. Then she brought that bowl back to the lodge she shared with Fishtail. And al- although that bark on a gun was thrown far away and buried now in snow, there was no knowing whether it would bring down the disease and its evils. During the next few days, everyone watched carefully for any signs of the sickness, and signs soon came. Ten snow was the first to fall into a fever, and then those in the lodge where the sick man had stayed fell ill, one after the next. The entire family, down to the oldest grandfather and the tiniest baby, suffered in the helpless hands of missionaries, who closed the school and kept them fed and warm on the floors of the building, just below the blackboard where Fishtail had finally learned to write his Chimukaman name. Six days later, just when Mama and Nokomis were hoping that the scratching sickness had passed them over, Angeline did not rise from her blankets. Overnight, the fever had seized her, and she lay hot and stifled, face red, eyes wild with fear when Mama came up to check on her. Omakias came, too, behind Mama, but with a stern look, Mama sent her back down the ladder. Take Niwo of, take care of Pinch and Niwo. Keep them downstairs, she ordered. Her voice, as she called Dede and looked over the edge of the loft, was calm with despair. Build a bark lodge outside, good and warm she instructed. Nokomis will take care of the children. You stay out there, too. And so, by the end of the day, the little family was divided. Inside the house, supplied with firewood and water, Mama and Angeline battled the invisible enemy. Outside, the others slept heavily and fearfully in the lodge, made from rolls of bark saved in the lean-to. Niwo curled with Omakaas around the tiny lodge fire. Pinch huddled next to Nokomis. Dede slept alone. On the third day, the evil day... Mama did not appear at the door to bring in the water Dede fetched. Nokomis went in and did not return for a long time. When she did show her face, she called from the doorway to Dede. My daughter has the sickness along with Angeline. Keep the children warm. Feed them good. She then disappeared into the cabin, and Dede spent the day chopping wood, hauling water, hunting, and talking to Old Tallow, who had come near in grim worry. The two sat hunched over the fire for a long while, drinking cups of strong swamp tea. Finally, Tallow lifted her gun, looped her rabbit snares around her wrists, and set out to hunt, now with more urgency than ever. On the eighth day, Pinch fell sick and was moved into the cabin where Nokomis took care of them all. Outside, Day-Day worked continually, emptying pots from inside and chopping holes in ice, fishing to keep them strong, making sure the water in their kettle was always fresh and clear their wood piled high, higher, higher. Why are you continuing to pile up the wood? Omakayas asked him, fearful, watching how he sweated and labored at the wood pile. Rest, Dede, she begged. In fear at his fixed and set face, his, uh, his deep eyes, he gave her a look of annoyance, as though from far away, and then, seeing that she offered him a cup of rabbit soup, Seeing that her face was chilled with terror for him, he softened. Gawain, my little frog, he said, pausing his voice unusually gentle. I cannot stop. I want to get a lot of wood ahead so I can take a little rest, eh? He smiled at her, but his smile was weary. The gentle exhaustion in his voice terrified her more than anything that had happened so far. 
That night, she lay sleepless, gazing at the flickering of the flames on the ceiling, wondering what was happening inside the cabin, listening to her father's even breathing and Niwo's tiny rumbling snore. It was as though the sickness was sucking at first, then the next, and the next, into the cabin where they disappeared and did not emerge. How could Nokomis take care of them all? What if Dede got sick too? Somehow it never occurred to her that she or Niwo would could sicken. Dede was the one she watched carefully, not Niwo. It was as though her little brother were part of her. She kept him so near. She didn't understand at all when Niwo fell ill. Or maybe she couldn't let the fact in, because she just loved her little brother so much. Maybe that. It happened in the night. As she held him close, Omakaias felt his small body body turn heated and molten, soft and fiery with the fever's rage. He was red, quiet, and limp in her arms when Dede woke, and Omakaias held him close, gently bathed his face with a bit of snow, hoping that he would grin at her, hoping again that he would be healthy and sweet. She didn't want the house, the sickness, to suck him in, too. It couldn't. She wouldn't let it. But as soon as she dozed off, Dede lifted little Niwo away. She woke immediately, crawled for the door of the lodge, and then, as Dede walked toward the silent cabin with the tiniest thread of smoke coming from the chimney, Amakaya saw him stagger. He didn't fall, but she knew from that misstep that Dede was ill, that he'd hidden his sickness, and that he was going into the cabin with Niwo, never to return. Omakayas acted without hesitation. She put out the little fire in the birch bark house. If they were all going to die together, then let it be so. She would not stay outside alone and away from those she loved. No, not even if it meant her life. She followed Niwo inside. The air in the cabin was thick with the stink of disease, but the hearth was warm. Nokomis had the sick ones arranged in their bedding, blankets pulled neatly up to their chins, mats clean on the floor all around the fire. Although Nokomis sat next to Mama in a stupor of exhaustion and did not at first speak to Amakaius, she nodded encouragingly at Angeline, who slept easily now, her fever broken, her hands limp on her blanket. Amakaius crouched beside her. That's when she saw that the beautiful face of her sister was covered with ugly sores and vivid lumps, and her mouth, when she opened it to breathe, showed that her gums bled painfully and stained her teeth red. Her hair was caught in a thick mat, but she was alive. Her breath moved steadily in and out. Mama slept, also covered with sores, unconscious and still in the depth of her danger. Pinch kept tossing off his covers or dragging at Mama's with a weary, loving, unthinking movement that showed she had done this thousands of times before, Nokomis replaced the blankets, held a tin cup of water to Pinch's lips, trickled a little water between Mama's lips, then Angeline's. Day-Day slumped, slumped over by the fire. She did not disturb except to lower him to the earth. Motioning to Amakas, she indicated Niwo, who was trembling now, his tiny arms and legs moving jerkily as the heat in his body increased and increased until he had not the strength to even cry. Keep holding him, said Nokomis tenderly, giving Niwo to Omakaas. Seating them by the fire, she placed her dry, old, cool hand on the back of Omakaas's head. Just keep holding him, she said again. And so Omakaas did. 
She held Niwo through the night, dozing with him, waking when he thrashed, cleaning him, bathing the cool water on his forehead and his tiny, straining, bony chest, his clenched hands and his beautiful feet. She held him when he melted into a troubled sleep, when his breath rasped, when his cough deepened, when he cried and cried until his voice was gone. She held him when he grew still and quiet too, when his fever came back. One day passed, another blurred, and still she held her little brother, held him close in her arms. She held him as he, look, as he looked mysteriously into her face, his eyes huge. She held him when he spat up blood, when he whimpered for Anne Dagg, who sat high in the roof beams, head underneath his wing. She held him through another night, held him when his chest went drum tight, and he struggled for breath, held him when he drew that breath deep from the heart, held him when he died. She held him close. She didn't know exactly when his life went, except that Andeg croaked three times, longingly, as though for his playmate. Then Omakaas knew that something had changed. Her little brother's body no longer warmed with its heat. They were the same temperature, and then he was colder. Still, she did not let him go. Nokomis had, had to take him from her arms. And when she did, Omakaas fell down on the blanket. Arms still held in the cradle shape of her brother and knew nothing all that day. It was night when she woke. Opening her eyes, she knew at once what had happened, and the bleak knowledge made her shut her eyes again. Maybe almost she wished that she were sick, too, that she could join him, for Nokomis had said that the Ojibwa must walk a path that leads out of this life and into the next, and since Niwo couldn't walk very well yet, who would carry him when he got tired, when he fell? Who would make sure that he was fed in the other world? Who would make him toy man dolls to dance? Who would care for him when he was lost? The answer, once she had risen, once she began working with Nokomis to care for her family, was a sad answer. Old Tallow brought the news later that day. She set four snared rabbits down near the door, then waited to speak. Ten snow is gone, she said. On the road to the next world, surely she and Niwa would meet, though Amakas, tears blinding her as she, as she tipped water into her father's lips, surely ten snow would hold Niwo's hand, swing him up in her arms, carry him along past the rough spots of danger to the places where they would be safe. Old Tallow took the horn spoon from Amakas and ordered her to lie down to sleep. She made Nokomis lie down as well in the corner with her grandchild. You two rest now. Go on, or I'll take a stick to you. Her voice was fierce, rasping, angry and strong. Nokomis obeyed her, sank into the skins, slept before her head touched the back of the blanket. Omakaas was glad to do the same. Old Tallow then proceeded to work. She built up the fire, high to a greater heat than Nokomis had dared, for she knew she could chop more wood as needed. She brought a new kettle of, of water in, skinned her rabbits by the light of the fire, and boiled them for a nourishing soup. She cleaned every corner, the way she never cleaned her own house. She left her dogs to run wild and tended every need, cared for the humans she loved, and, although she never would admit it, loved even more than she loved her dogs. Old Tallow's work helped them, but the next day she left once more to hunt. Nokomis weakened, though she wasn't ill. Omakaas, le 
Omakayas alone was left to tend to the sick ones. She had to keep the fire going, haul the water, cover them, bathe them down, comfort them when they were restless. She hardly slept an hour at a time. First one needed her, then the other, then a third. The first again. There was no stopping. Their cries were pitiful. When the terrible itching that gave the disease its name started, Omakayas wrapped their hands with cloth, bit down bit down their fingernails, anything to keep them from scarring themselves. The itching nearly drove them from their minds. Pinch was worst, and he'd weakened so badly that Nokomis was afraid for him. Night and day, one or the other sat with him and did not let go of his hand, for fear he would run to the land of the spirits. And Egg seemed to sense how close Pinch was to death, and Egg perched near Pinch, as though keeping guard. Every time Pinch slipped too far away, the bird croaked, Gay go, Pinch! One stubborn eye flared open, and Pinch fixed his annoyed little boy glare upon the bird. He was mad, but he got well. Gay go, Pinch! Gay go! Gay go! called Andeg. What he really meant was, Don't go. One night, Omakaya woke to see Day Day trying to rise to his feet. In the dim light of a low fire, she saw him throw off his blankets. He tried to stagger outside. She knew that was certain death. Many died of this sickness when they became so fevered that they lost their minds, threw off blankets, and walked outside to freeze. Please, Day Day, she said to draw him back. He sank onto all fours, but kept crawling determinedly toward the door, groaning, hair wild. His eyes did not know her, and his face was frightful. He clawed at the door, fell to his knees, got up on his knees. This time, he was so determined that Omakayas knew there was no way she could save him from going outside. He was too strong for her, even in his sickness. Gawin! Onjida! she said. I'm sorry! Raising a block of wood high, she brought it down on his head with all her strength. He crumpled to the ground. Omakayas sobbed as she dragged his blankets to him and covered him. He was too heavy to drag near the fire. For a long time, she kneeled next to him, praying for him to live. She loved him, her day-day. What would they do without him? Back in her own blankets, she immediately sank into a fierce oblivion. When she woke, it was morning. Instantly, she remembered the night before. Was her father dead? Had her blow killed him? Fear gripped her as she crept to his side, put her hand to his lips. His breath came evenly. He seemed a little better even than the day before. As the morning went on, he sipped broth for the first time, opened his eyes. My little frog. He smiled, closing his eyes again, this time to sleep comfortably. You could bring down a bear with the strength of your club. His fever was broken at last. Omakayas's constant attention brought the little family through the first part of the illness's danger. One by one, they, they improved, all because of her careful nursing. Later, it was the vaccine of the Reverend Hall, fetched from the mainland, that guarded the rest of the Ojibwa, who had been exposed and who survived the smallpox of 1847. Eighteen Ojibwa died of the disease, and one tried to kill himself by other means. That man was Fishtail. No one had understood it of him, but his wife was everything. When Ten Snow left him, Fishtail would not leave her body. He slashed his arms and was found in the blanket beside her. Half alive, he survived. 
but once he had the strength, he cut off his long, thick, splendid hair. He buried it with the sweet woman who was called Ten Snow, not because her own skin was white, nor because she had much of anything to do with snow at all, but because the kind assurance of her nature had reminded her neighbors of the way the deep snow covers and forgives all it touches when it falls. In the deep of winter, Niwo and Ten Snow were buried side by side. A great bonfire was lighted in order to thaw the ground. Niwo and Ten Snow were wrapped in red blankets, then birch bark, and at last laid gently into their good mother, Akin, the earth. As soon as Day Day was better, he and Fishtail worked side by side, constructing the grave houses for their loved ones. At the western end of each little house, they carefully framed a small window-like opening and built beneath it a shelf for spirit offerings. Although food was scarce, Mama often brought Niwo a little something saved for her own bowl and placed it on the shelf with tobacco. She stayed long in the cold, wrapped in her blanket, praying for her little boy. At the burying ground, there were many new graves. The winter was hard. As she sat talking to her child's spirit, someone else almost always came near, added their tobacco, said a few words of comfort, and passed on to their own grieving. Omakas got sick too, but not with the smallpox. A wholly different fever followed upon her family's recovery, an illness of weakness and grief. Even as her mother strengthened and her father got better and became more and more himself, Omakas retreated from the world. She ate less and less, thought long into the night. Often in her mind's eye, she saw Niwo's tiny moccasins forlorn in the firelight as they sagged, tipped over, when in his fever he kicked them off. He never wore them again in his short life. Her brother Pinch, however, more than recovered. From the loft, she could hear him downstairs, ruder and louder than ever. She heard her bird, and Dig, scratching on the floor. She heard old Tallow come and go. She heard her grandmother singing an old song as she stirred something fragrant in the kettle. Gently, Mama called her from the base of the ladder. She heard this, but Omakeas kept her eyes closed. Food did not interest her. All she did was think of Niwo. She considered what she could have done to arrest the illness. Fed him more soup? Forced him to keep his moccasins warm on his feet? Taken him out away into the woods? There lived alone with him until the smallpox had run its course? And Mama, Omakeas worried about her too. She was so quiet and thin, so restrained. When she sat, she didn't just sit still. It was like she turned to stone. In her eyes, there was such a deep and penetrating look of loss that Omakas could not bear to see her at all. Angeline was some comfort, though, still weak. She kept badgering old Tallow to bring her a mirror, but the old woman refused until one day Angeline screamed at her, shockingly, that she wanted to see herself. Am I so bad-looking? she yelled in rage. Am I so ugly now? Gawain, said old Tallow very slowly, the lines in her face shadowing. You are still beautiful. Amakas, lying next to her sister, closed her eyes in pain. The smallpox had left Angeline's cheeks, pitted with scars, and slightly twisted Angeline's perfect hunting bow of a dark, ma dark mouth. The smallpox had thinned her face until her teeth stuck out. The smallpox, worst of all, had killed Angeline's tiny brother 
and a friend of her heart, Ten Snow. Pain and loss showed in deep furrows around her sister's mouth. The mirror came, a scrap of it anyway, and Angeline stared into it, slowly, her eyes filled. When she had seen enough, she put the mirror down gently, turned away, and refused for a long time to speak. It was difficult for Omakas to understand all that had happened. Why Niwa was gone, though at night she still imagined that she heard his cries. Why her sister's face would never again be smooth. Why she herself was still too weak to run and crept back to her sleeping blanket whenever she could. She slept and slept as though she would never wake. She didn't want to think about the things that had happened. But there were times that questions came to her, occurring in the deep of night, sometimes even in dreams. The spirits, the Manitous, who lived in all things, why had they ignored her prayers, her mother's prayers, and the powerful prayers of Nokomis? Why had Day-Day's strength not helped? And her grandmother's medicine, so useful at other times? Why hadn't it worked for Niwo? Nokomis said sorrowfully that she had no medicines for this white man's disease. But Omakayas did not have smallpox. Omakayas had something else. Why didn't the strong tea made of bitter bark, the tea that Nokomis brewed for Omakayas, send her jumping up lively as she used to be? Sometimes she thought that if only her mother would laugh, she would begin to feel better. But Yellow Kettle was dull and angry with sorrow, and couldn't help her own daughter. Day after day passed, and Nokomis's teas grew more bitter. She made a stronger concoction, burned sweet grass braids, fanned Omakayas too, but the deep cold seemed to have seized her heart. She was, she was ashamed of the way she thought sometimes up in her blanket. Listening to Pinch, her annoying brother who didn't seem sad at all, she wondered why Niwa was taken and Pinch left behind. Why was Niwa taken to the next world and she left behind? There was no explanation that satisfied her. Nothing that gave her the hope she needed to rise and take up the rest of her life. Not even when Angeline bravely smashed a little piece of mirror one day and left the cabin, walking out the door determined to go to the missionary school and learn the meaning of the white man's writing, like fishtail. Not even then was Omakas inspired to come downstairs. Nokomis sat with her, quilling, through the whole day sometimes. She told her old stories, adventures of Nanabozo, the tricky and generous teacher of the Anishinaabe, who cleverly outwitted dangerous foes and taught the Anishinaabe to survive. Omakayas listened, but did not find the stories, not find in the stories the will to go forward. Could Nanabozo have outwitted smallpox? Could Nanabozo push back the dreadful days, send home the awful visitor who had taken Niwo and Ten Snow? Could Nanabozo at least say a word or two in his own defense or encourage Omakayas to go on with her life? Nothing happened. No voices explained things. Her dreams were blank. One day, however, Old Tallow unexpectedly appeared at the top of the ladder. In her rough, steady hand, she held a bark container of rabbit soup, boiled up with potatoes from the storage cache. Eat this, she urged Omakayas. Or else! She threatened when Omakayas was reluctant. After Amakaias had taken the first taste, Tallow insisted that she drink until she couldn't fit in another drop. Ah, there, said Tallow approvingly. You need to get your strength back. Amakaias nodded and closed her eyes. 
Don't sleep now, said Tallow gruffly. The sky is clear. Your brother is sliding on the lake. Go out. Be childish. Omakaes kept her eyes closed and lengthened her breath, hoping that old Tallow would believe that she had fallen asleep. After a while, the old woman fell silent. Though she continued to sit near Omakaes, pondering what she should do next. Of course she was suspicious. Omakaes felt Tallow's gaze locked on her. After all, she was a hunter, used to waiting at the dens of animals. If anyone could find a way to surprise Omakaes back to life, it would be her. Omakaes determined to outweight her, to crawl deeper and deeper into her dark burrow of sleep. Eventually, as though from far away, Omakaes felt the tentative brush of Tallow's tough, creased palm and heard the rustle of her clothes as she got up and quietly left. At first, Omakaes tried to think she had won. Then she had that she had outwitted old Tallow and made her impatient, as even the wariest animals have often failed to do. But then the time stretched long. Omakaes couldn't sleep. Her feet tingled to run. Energy from the rabbit soup flowed through her, and she drummed her fingers against the floor. She was stubborn, shut her eyes. Who was fooling whom, she wondered. The sun was shining brilliantly outside. Had she really bested old Tallow? And at whose expense? None other than her own. With a sigh, Omakaes got up. She went out. For the first time since the illness, she felt the sun on her face. But even its promise of warmth did not make her smile.